1: 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Bring spring color inside this season with Bear Premium Plus paint starting at just $28.98 a gallon at the Home Depot. Add a pop of blue to your kitchen with the bear exclusive color Arrowhead Lake or a splash of Amazon jungle to your living room. Bring a cool breeze to your bathroom with sea glass or accent your bedroom with sunrise inspired colors like coral cloud and dark crimson.
3: Off the Record is a production of iHeartRadio. Hello and welcome to another bonus episode of Off the Record. I'm your host, Jordan Runtog. Thanks so much for listening. Our latest chapter covered David Bowie's creative renaissance in the 90s and early 2000s. It was a fascinating period for David as he turned his back on the mainstream commercial success he'd earned with his 1983 smash Let's Dance, an album that made him a mainstay on corporate music television. By veering away from the middle of the road, he freed himself of the expectations and demands of mass appeal and got back to doing what he wanted. The records that he made in this period are often overlooked, but rank among the most experimental of his career. He rejoined formative 70s collaborators like Brian Eno and Tony Visconti. Together, they'd create some of the most daring music David ever made. But one crucial collaborator during this period was new to Bowie's circle. Her name is Gail Ann Dorsey, and she's one of my all-time bass-playing idols. If you've ever heard her duet with Bowie on Under Pressure, then you'll know exactly why. Born and raised in Philadelphia, Gail studied film at Cal Arts before returning to her first love of music. She moved to London in the early 80s, where she pursued her dream. Over the years, she's worked with everyone from Lenny Kravitz, Gang of Four, and Olivia Newton-John, to Boy George, Tears for Fears, and the Indigo Girls not to mention her own incredible solo work, definitely check out her 1988 debut LP called The Corporate World. Her partnership with Bowie began with a call out of the blue, something of a theme with David. It was 1995, and he was looking for a bassist to join the tour to promote one outside. David had seen Gail performing on British television seven years earlier, and he'd never forgotten her. He just had a feeling, and that feeling was right on the money. She accompanied him on every tour for the rest of his life and played on the albums Earthling, Reality, and most thrillingly, his secret comeback record the next day. My conversation with Gail was a joy. I hope you enjoyed as much as I did. I guess taking it all the way back to the beginning, was there a moment when you knew music was what you wanted to do with your life or did it happen slowly?
4: Oh, I knew it from the very beginning. I, I just I just innately knew it. I don't know why or how, but I knew that was... When I heard music, it just made perfect sense to me, basically. From the earliest of, of ages, I was singing or wanting an instrument. No, I knew it. And I, and I just knew that I couldn't really conceive of doing anything else in the world. Like, the older I got, even through, like, you know my teenage years or or even before that, I just thought what when i you know when I'm a grown up, I have to play music like all the people I listen to and see on t v and go to concerts, I was like that that's that's where I belong, and I don't know how I'm going to make it, but I have to because there's no I just knew there was no alternative. I really did. You grew
3: up in in Philadelphia in the early '70s, and it's mm-hmm. hard to think of a better place for a music lover to be at that that place at that well, time. That,
4: absolutely, absolutely. I I I'm very I'm very I'm a very proud Philadelphian, and um, and I I really have a a great memory of the city of my time growing up in that city. I couldn't I just think it was such a rich musical uh, environment at that time. I, when I think back on it now, I just go, oh, wow, what an oasis that you know. Just the way it was kind of permeating them. I mean, music still is an integral part of our culture and our life. We can't survive. It. It's like it's like water and air. We need it to live. We really do. Um, but that was just a time when music was just still growing, and it was just it was more kind of organic, and in the sense that it wasn't um, so technologically driven. We were talking about technology earlier, and it, 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 I think there, there was something to be said for lack of of finding ways to do things. So music was so innovative at that time, I think. So it was a great, great education, a great, exciting time for music.
3: And you were the the youngest in your family. Did your older siblings turn you on the stuff from a little before your time? I know you've mentioned Cream Mm -hmm. and Grand Funk Railroad. Who else did they really get you
4: into? yeah well that's where it, yeah that's they that's where it started i mean they they were the ones that had the record player before I got there you know and they had they were bringing records into the house and everybody's playing music in the neighborhood but in our house it was all the hand me down albums from my sister and brothers and and my one of my older brothers uh was was a real he you know dabbled in music he played kungas he played the Upright bass for a minute. He dabbled with guitar. He loved music. So he he and he had a tape recorder with the little wheels on it, like the Mission Impossible, <laughs> you know, the old the tiny little cassette wheels and the microphone that plugs in and you know a little plastic microphone. And he he would let me sing in it. And that was like the once that happened. That was really another like a big epiphany. I was like, oh for sure, I've got to do. this. I heard my voice come back on the machine. I was like, oh my god, this is it. <laughs> this is what I, I have to do this um, but they, they brought a lot of different music, that, that was the beauty of that time, the music was very different um, so many, you know they were listening to things from bands like Cold Blood, which were kind of these kind of white bands that were kind of soulful, like like, like Blood, Sweat, and Tears you know, those mm. type of bands Rare Earth, that kind of stuff And then there was Earth from the Fire, of course and in their early days, they were kind of jazzy they weren't so pop so there was all these different you know elements, and then you know, I would always say, "I don't know when my brothers something must have fallen off the back of a truck, you know they'd come home with some weird album that, <laughs> 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 That's how we used to put it. I was like, "Where did you get that?" You know the first drumsticks I got, my brother came home said here. Here's these and there was like these drumsticks that I ended up beating on everything with. But I was like, "Where did they come from? Oh, off the back of a truck." But um, <laughs> <laughs> this was the saying. But I remember my first Partridge Family was one of those albums from off the back of a truck, which uh, actually the TV show was on, which I was loved watching. But when I put on that first Partridge Family album, it was like, "Wow!" I the Wrecking Crew, all that that yeah. music—that was the music I really, really, really loved because it was on the radio. My mother listened to AM radio all the time. It was always on in the kitchen and it had all that music, Partridge Family, Carpenters, um, you know, uh, Carol King, like all the, the sort of early singer-songwriters. So music was handed down to me and I just absorbed it all, including, you know, Queen, Rosie Cream. my brothers listened to Led Zeppelin and listened to, you know, Jimi Hendrix. It was across the board. It wasn't sort of polarized as it is now. There's a lot of mixture of stuff.
3: What kind of impact did the band Heart have on you?
4: Huge. Uh, Because I was at that, by the time they came out in 75 ish, really, Magic Man, 75, 76, I I had my first electric guitar and I had started a little band with a couple of uh, boys that lived across the street bass and drums so we were like a grand funk trio and I don't know why I don't know where the grand funk albums came from but they were one of my favorite in fact that was the guitar Mark Farner's guitar he was one of my first guitar heroes I was like that guy could play guitar like nobody's business it was so soulful and funky and just and it just was I listened to those so I was kind of trying to imitate that I've never got never come close but (laughs) on guitar anyway but, um, you know, I had, I had a band with these guys. And then, uh, but, you know, I bet there weren't many role models for me, you know, certainly not in the black community anyway, black artists. Were, you know, there was Taste of Honey came out with Boogie Oogie, you know, with mm-hmm. two black women with a bass and a guitar, but it wasn't really what what I was hoping to do in, in the future. So all of a sudden, Heart comes out and I see Nancy Wilson. She was playing acoustic, but she was also playing electric sometimes. And they were rocking out like like Zeppelin, but to me, and better. I I just I don't know. I like Led Zeppelin, but it, they, they're kind of more of a macho boy band to me. <laughs> 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 and Heart and Heart was a good sort of in between. They weren't they were no pussies. Put it I mean, put it that you know. But they weren't like you know they had they had a female touch, and it was yeah. so soulful. And Ann Wilson to this day to me is the greatest female rock singer ever, ever that I've ever heard. Let me put it that way. Um, so they had a huge impact. They're like my second favorite band of all time. I, I wore their records out all the way through the 80s and still listen to them and got to meet them and just uh, just love them. Aww. So that was a big, because it just made me feel like I could do it. When I saw Nancy Wilson up there, like Kick It Out, you know, all this great stuff, Little Queen, I thought, like, yeah, I can do this. Oh, yes. Women are allowed to do this, you know.
3: You mentioned... Playing guitar. How did you make the uh, the the jump to uh, to bass?
4: Just to get work. Like, yeah. I think if you talk to a lot of bass players, they say the same thing that they stumbled onto the bass because people needed somebody to play the bass because it wasn't really cool. It wasn't well. It, it wasn't as cool as it is now. In terms of an instrument that people, you know, everybody played the guitar, and you know, it was about being a, a guitar god uh, or maybe a drummer. But bass was always this thing that people used to say when I remember when I was young, they were like, well, you can't, I don't even know what the bass is doing. I can't hear it. You know, it's, <laughs> it's like, really? You know what I mean? It's like they yeah. they perceived that it was this thing in the background that just kind of was there like mumbling away while everything else was up front. Because usually in a band, unless unless it was Finn Lizzy or huh. or um, with uh, the, the Motorhead or, or Sting when he came along, um, which was a little later on in the game. but In the early days, it was like the bass was kind of in the background. Uh, Now, at this point in my life, as being known as a bass player and all the years I've played the bass, it is the most important. It it is really the most important instrument, I think, in an an ensemble. What the bass represents, whether it's coming from a guitar or a left hand of a keyboard or a synth or whatever, a tuba, whatever's assuming that role is in charge. It's the heartbeat. (laughs) It's in charge of like harmonically and emotionally and just the direction of where a piece of music goes. It really changed. Once the bass comes in, you might think you don't hear it, but you certainly feel it.
3: You feel, and you know when it's not there. I feel like that's like a really crucial part. Well,
4: that's, Exactly, exactly. the whole earth changes. It's like a shift. It's like free fall, and then when it comes back, it's grounded, and it's taking you in whatever the next direction is, whether it's playing the root note or some kind of substitution if it and it you know if it screws up, <laughs> you know on something. You know immediately, you know, when you start making those mistakes <laughs> on stage, you are like, it was most, that's that's like, you know, getting a, an electric jolt. You're like, oh, oh dear, warning. <laughs> 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 so, you, you you know, and you start, and that's like your biggest fear for me still, really, is always my biggest fear, you know, because I'm still not always like it. You know, I'm, I'm no Nathan East or whatever who can really... Just randomly play a song from top to bottom and never not going to hit a wrong note. You know, I'm going to have to figure it out first. So it usually takes me time, unless it's something very simple. <laughs> what was your but, yeah. uh,
3: What was your first bass that you that you ever had or you ever played? Do you remember?
4: It was an Epiphone, which I no longer have, but I have pictures of it, and I can't. I don't even know. I should actually send it to someone at Epiphone if they could tell me what that model is. I have never ever seen it again. I recently, um, when my mother passed away, um, about 10 years ago now, um, an old friend, interestingly enough, um, who had something to do with me becoming a bass player, she was the best friend of my sister. My sister was seven years older than me. When I went for my, so I'm going to go in the story very quick, but when I went for my first bass audition to get a job in a top 40 band which was to find work which is why I decided I borrowed a bass and it was from her boyfriend that I borrowed a bass to go to this audition and then I said to my mother if I get the job I was 15 I think 14 or 15 so if I get the job will you buy me a bass and she said, yeah sure <laughs> she didn't <laughs> think I'd get the job so I got the job in the summer, like in between school, with a guy who was older, who's was eighteen or nineteen at the time. who became a lifelong friend, funny enough. And uh, and I used her boyfriend's Rickenbacker. And then, of Ooh, course, and then after my mother, yeah. And then my my mother had to buy me a bass, and she bought me that Epiphone bass. <laughs> and then my friend, who uh, uh, whose boyfriend's bass I borrowed. When she came to my mother's funeral these many years later, she brought me a little stack of photographs she took of me with that Epiphone bass because wow. I didn't know they existed. I don't remember. I posed like I was a rock star <laughs> in a car. I think that you can see them on Facebook, you know, my little afro and my little corduroy pants, you know, <laughs> my 70s. And I'm standing in the middle of the street like I'm somebody, you know, with my bass <laughs> or leaning on a grand Torino or something, you know. <laughs>
3: Like your Lemmy was, or, uh, or 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 uh, yeah, Lizzy or something posing, with the Rick. You know?
4: Yeah, I was posing in my my Epiphone bass, and um, <laughs> so it was so funny how that how she was the one that had that, and it came around that many years later. She said, "I think you're going to want these pictures." Oh, that's so special. So They're all faded and everything. Yeah, so that my first bass was an Epiphone, and I uh, when I went away to college to do screenwriting and make movies. I just gave it to someone. I don't even know where it went. Yeah. <laughs> you know, when you're young, you so, say, "Okay, now I'm doing this." But not that I wanted to give up music, but I definitely had a strong interest in film. I still, I still love film. I don't have a lot of time to spend on it anymore, but I'd like to, I'd like to get watch more films. But with all the streaming and everything, now, yeah. it's, 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 it's almost overwhelming. It's endless. It's too overwhelming, you know. I miss the days of okay, waiting for the next film, go to the theater, pace yourself. <laughs> <laughs> what brought back? What brought you back
3: to music after going to Calarts to study screenwriting? What what made you to return after sort of? It seems like you were on uh, such a path in Philadelphia and these bands and things. What what sort of brought you back after going off to uh, to school?
4: Well, well, I mean, you know. <clears throat> I, I think i um it was the industry of film that I discovered just through school. I mean, obviously it never worked in the movies or anything. um but it was the experience of the men in film school yeah. at that time. It completely I was like I'm not gonna survive in this business because i don't I can't put up with that. yeah I can't put up with being disrespected or, or ignored or mistreated in that way. And it was nothing sexual, but it was not, I was the only female in my freshman class in 1980. Wow. This wow. is 1980. Um, now it would be a whole different story. I'm sure there's women all over the place, which, is, which it should have been. But at that time it wasn't, and I, that didn't dawn on me. Cause I'm just, this is my first time away from home. I'm 17 or 18 never been on a plane. I go from Philadelphia to Van Nuys Airport and you know, a little bus picks me up and takes me to Calais. I'm in college all of a sudden. And then I go to my class and a lot of the guys, because Arts was not a traditional university, but you could still get a bachelor's you know, degree. It didn't do math and science and all that. It had like these critical studies. And then it was art five days a week. It was just all about whatever school you were in. So you know the basic production class is what you start with in the film live action. It's just sort of one uh, one semester of like this thing where you learn like the basics of the, the film and filming itself. So you do each job. You boom operator. You learn how to load the 16 millimeter camera. You have your little editing suite. Like you do, you learn the basics of everything: lighting and Nagra sound. Just so you have to work amongst yourselves and and, and, and um, a lot of the guys also, it wasn't structured that if people were just coming out of high school, they were, some of the guys in the class had worked already in a TV station in, in Puerto Rico or somebody was from, from Germany or, and they had already had, they were 20 or 25, you know, they weren't, it wasn't, so it was a mixture of people in the class. And I think there was only one other black guy, if I recall. And... Um they were they just i would i didn't you know, they were like I didn't exist like no one would want to work with me they wouldn't want uh, we were supposed to be on each other's film shoots, no one would hire me. Awesome. I was just ignored it was and then I saw what they were doing, and like they were making they were going down to Hollywood and stuff and trying to make little movies, and you know they were really ambitious, and when I saw the level of what they would do to get something done. And what they would do to someone, or some, uh, what they they would, it's like they would sell their grandmother the most. You know, it's like, (laughs) I thought, you know what? I was like, this is not the industry. If this is, I didn't imagine it to be this way, (laughs) you know, as a kid dreaming in West Philly. And I was like, if it's going to be like this, I have not got time for this. And I dropped out. I remember going to the dean in tears. I said, they won't hire me, they won't. And then something happened, which was so funny is that at the very end of the year, when um, people, they some guy was shoot one of the guys was shooting a film down in Hollywood, like not in the school grounds, but he had some friends and they were going to shoot some kind of crime scene or something in somebody's flat and, in Hollywood. And um, he knocked on my editing door, one of the directors, one of the snotty guys, you know. <laughs> and he said, <laughs> and he said, um, you know, um, I, I'm I'm shooting this film down in the city in the weekend, and and the person who was going to do continuity, basically script girl, you know that kind of job, um, has has bailed on me. And I, you know, I I, I guess you're free. You know, they knew I was free, of course. You know, everybody else was working on everybody else's things. And I was trying to find somebody who would work with me. So I was hanging out with the theater students and playing music in the cafe. (laughs) Anyway, uh, so I took the job. I said, yeah, I'll come and do it. And I happen to have four moons, four houses in Virgo. I'm a Scorpio, but I'm so anal. I'm very precise. (laughs) I can't help it. I'm a little OCD. So I go down and I get my I know what the job is because I've studied it. And I'm like, okay, this is what you do. And you make a log from the from the film to the the sound person. You got to load the clappers. You got to take the Polaroids. I have my camera. Take pictures of the actors. Make sure the cigarette's in the right hand. You know, all that shit. So I do it, and I write all my notes down. I know how to do the charts. I have the forms and everything. Give it to the director at the end of the shoot, and then they go off and they edit, and they use my notes. So they know they like take seven, but they like take three of that one, and they like, et cetera. A week later, I'm flooded with people who want me to be continuity <laughs> on this <laughs> shoot. <laughs> The director knocked on my door because I, I, I used to hang out in my editing room down in the sub level, we called it. We, they, we all had those rooms with the Steinbeck where, you know, and, and the little film that I did make, you know, I would just sort of roll it around and around and just, or just sit down there and smoke some weed or something. I don't know what I was doing anyway. So they knocked on the door and said, uh, um, you know, this is the best film notes, uh, editing notes I've ever had. I, it's the easiest time for me to edit my film. This is amazing. It's so it's so precise. So then I was suddenly script girl, you know, for everybody, which was funny. They all liked me then. And <laughs> then it was too late because I was like, I'm out of here. <laughs> <laughs> not the industry for me, not that level anyway. I, I'm sure I would love to have a great idea and write a good script that gets made one of these days. But that was another thing was like screenwriting. I enjoyed writing when I was a kid and I still like to write a bit. And I, I just felt like I need for me as a person and as an artist, I need more feedback. And I found film to be a lonely thing in a sense that, um, you work, especially especially screenwriting, because you write this piece that you work on for a year or however long or maybe shorter or longer, and then it takes years for someone to make it. It's possible that it will take years, many years before it's made, and it gets revised, and it's like this. And then, then it gets made, and then they want to change it. And like so there's all this. I thought, so I need more. I can't wait that long <laughs> to get some kind of affirmation of something from someone experiencing my work. You know what I mean? Oh,
3: so when you give the script away, it's somebody else's vision too when you see it up on the screen too. So that, that's that got to feel. That can't feel good.
4: No, well, that's what I meant. I mean, and I would love to have directed. I would like to be the double barrel, you know, the writer-director kind of thing. But... You know, it was, I just thought, I just knew that that, the way that, what I felt of the industry that I could experience through my experience with with film school at Cal Arts at that time, I'm sure it's really different now. In fact, I know it is. It, It was just not, I just didn't want to work in that. I just couldn't exist in that way. And then, of course, it would be a matter of time before that, that sort of, you know, attitude towards me turns into other things the sexual thing and all that. It's like, I just couldn't deal with it. And it's been, and so music, I was like, I'm going to go back and play music. And then, and then with, at least with music, you stand on a stage and you play and you, you get immediate, uh, you know, feedback and response from, from what you're giving. And that, and once that happens, I mean, that's the magic for me of life. Those are the moments I am most comfortable being in my skin as a human being on this planet. Is when I can walk on a stage, big or small, You know, ten people, ten million people, whatever. You know, however many, and just have that connection. It's like um, it's like my meditation. It's the only Mm. time my brain is empty of uh, empty of uh, all the things that are destroying me at other times. (laughs) You know, so it's it's been so in that respect. This year has been really difficult. The past year has been super hard, not just for me, but a lot of my peers. And I'm sure the people who, who want to experience what we, what we can offer or what we have to offer. I mean, we're, it's all what we give. I feel like music and, and artists in general, it's just we, we're giving the thing that's, that's missing the most in the world, and that's love. You know, what we give is this sort of what I would describe as a large love, you know, like not love being in love, but just like positivity. You know, and, um, and we need to get that back very soon. We need to get that exchange going, pumped out into the world again very, very soon. But well, we're in big danger.
5: <laughs> oh,
4: yeah. You know, and not and not through a screen. And not through a screen. We can't live like this through these screens. We can't. No. That's going to destroy us as well, I believe, eventually. So we got to get out there and connect with the people again, with music and dance and things that bring that level of of good vibration up in
3: people's spirits. Oh my gosh, I know. It's just so fascinating to me to think that you know, when we see remnants of, of, of early human civilizations from times when we're still just tr- struggling to to eat and survive, you see traces of mm-hmm. of, mu- of musical instruments. So clearly this is a base human need from, you know, and, and, and we don't know why. I, I love that. I just love that the mystery of music. Like, we don't know where it came from. Or yes, I love
4: I know, that. I know, I know. I was seeing, I watched a little bit of the Fran Lebowitz. Are you familiar mm-hmm. with her? The, the writer that's on Netflix or Hulu or one of those, things. I don't know which one. At the moment, she's doing a thing with Scorsese where she's just kind of ranting about New York City, which she does <laughs> so brilliantly. Yes. I love her. But she says a bit, she said a thing about music on one of the episodes, and I was just sobbing because she really hit it she's like there's no other art form that can touch a person and change them instantly in a matter of seconds from yeah. one like can take you and transport you and you don't know why and she was and it's true and i just thought oh my god it is it really is a special magical thing and, and i personally feel so incredibly like that's what's so weird just like knowing as a kid that i was i needed to be a vessel for that I don't know why, but I, uh, you know, and I still feel like I'm just like, that's what, that is what my, I'm here to do. I don't have anything else really, I mean, I have things to offer, but you know what I mean? I, I, that's the best I can offer, put it that way. That is the, the best of me is to keep allowing the gift I've been given to channel that energy into the earth, into people, into the world as best I can, you know?
3: I, I love that line from the We the Lieberwitz documentary it's, it's 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 such a unique art form for that reason i mean I, I I learned music as a kid because i I loved it and I wanted to see if maybe if I learned how to make those sounds myself I would understand why it made me feel that way That's it. And, and it never exactly. it never happened to me it's just I, I still don't understand why I, could, I put my hand here and it's an F major seventh chord and it makes me feel yeah. warm or something mm-hmm. and I, I just still don't it's exactly. vibrational. It's vibrational. It's the best thing can it say.
4: Is. It is, and vibration <laughs> is everything. It really is. It's vibration is everywhere. It's 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 important. Very important. We can't see it, but it's it's uh, it's it's a huge force. It's very present in all of us. Yeah.
0: Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury
3: Did, I mean, just thinking about the, the, the convergence of different kinds of art forms, did, did studying film with, with the narrative and the visual elements and the costuming and everything that entails, including music, perhaps prepare you in some ways for, for going on tour with, with David Bowie? Because obviously that was such a huge um, element mm-hmm. for him.
4: Yeah, it, yeah, we talked about that a lot because he knew that I'd gone to film school. And, and and at one point, I you know he used to call me I'm the little documentarian. You know, <laughs> I, I shot a lot of film, a lot of video stuff. But he he would just allow me to kind of film a bunch of stuff sometimes. And um, there's one thing that he um, we were on Rosie O'Donnell um, uh, for the Earthling album, I think you can find it somewhere maybe on YouTube. I don't know where I've seen it once or twice. Um, where she, she always asked him to sing China Girl to, him, to her, and he would never do it. And they were good friends. He was really good friends with Rosie O'Donnell, him and Iman both. And uh, he wanted me to film a, a high eight, because at the time it was like high eight tape videotape. He wanted me to film him singing China Girl in the chair, on her, uh, talking to Rosie on the guitar. He was going to surprise her. And then take the tape out of the machine and give it to her as a gift, and I do it. I'm on the screen he he and she's like wondering where I've come from, and I'm all of a sudden I'm up on the on the stand, you know filming him, and then he starts singing china girl and then and then he's he says, "Give me the tape, and I give him the tape, and he presents it to rosie but the the whole film thing was yeah, we talked, like he knew I liked film, so it was a nice subject that we had to talk about sometimes. And he, um, he always, you know, encouraged me to, to, to make movies and take pictures. And he thought that was very cool. He liked anybody who, who was kind of into, loads of things like that especially uh, I'm not an avid reader I'm not as big a reader as he is he's a huge reader but you know like Reeves Cabral for example was, was on his level with that kind of thing and they would go on and on about books all day and have all these great references so I mean yeah I think I think film school did help in some ways. certainly theater like being around the theater school helped me a lot um which was another um, facet of Cal Arts. they have five different schools of art, so they're all kind of intertwined. But I, I hung around with a lot of actors and just the whole kind of stage presence thing was uh, helped me a little bit with getting, that, getting there with David. But I feel like with David, he he really was another university. I mean he was another level of me, of, uh, like a mentor for For many aspects, for my visual aspects, like you know what to wear, how to be on stage, just you know and not even by saying much, but just by he knew I was watching, you know what i mean he he was kind of demonstrating without words in some ways, and he would guide me in in, in more of a physical sense, not you know like just or not physical and kind of kind of cosmic in a sense, you know he would be like. Like watch this kind of like this is what we this is where we're gonna go you know kind of check this out, and I was just absorbing it all like a sponge. It was really you know he was kind of very much another level of 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 learning to be a professional and whatever that means I guess in that sense you know be be a good a performer.
3: It's hard to think of a of a less inhibited artist. I mean, that must have been in- incredible to to it see, and and to, to, for you to grow as well to have that example in front of you. Oh
4: my god, I I don't you know that was and it was it came out of left field. It wasn't you know I was a Bowie fan. I would love to have been in one of his bands, but I used to think because I think I said to my friend Louise Goffin, I was like, I would love to play for David Bowie or somebody like that, because to me. There's like a, I was saying this to another journalist the other day about David and and someone like um uh, what's his name Frank Zappa mm. or those kind of people like when you're in one of those bands like you're like the shit like that's <laughs> like like and you know like it's one of those bands that you you come out of that someone's like oh he played for or she played for so and so that's like to reach that i used to think i would never reach that you know i thought okay i can play with other people i'm never going to reach that level where i'm like steve Vai or something you know it's like so that was a, like to be invited to that out of nowhere it was like oh my god what's happening i had no idea what was happening um i really i was just like i can't believe this is happening so i you know i Dropped everything I was doing and went for it, and it was the best decision I've ever made, I guess, to, certainly in terms of my career so far.
3: And it really was of out bad. of the blue. It, it was just—it a, a phone call?
4: A phone call out of the blue. He said he saw me on a television show in the late 80s. He didn't call me till 95. But knowing him, I know why he, he, he won't forget his photographic memory. Even with all those drugs and alcohol, he can remember absolutely everything. I can't remember the last week. <laughs> <laughs> it's crazy. It's <laughs> like, you know, and he could remember every little detail. So if something sparked him, if something he liked, he won't, he's not going to forget it, or something he thinks he can use later on, because that's what I was. He said, I saw you on a TV show. Uh, he was in London, flipping channels, and I came on. Thank God! Wow. Stopped on a music program, and I was on a music pre- program with my first uh, album on on a major label. I was on Warner Brothers, WEA, in the UK, and Fire in the U.S. Um, and I did the corporate world, and I was doing all the TV shows in London for the, to promote the album. And I was on. He said, "You you spoke to the host." And then you went and you played a song with your band or on my own. I don't know. A lot of times it was just me and my guitarist. And then uh, I'd go and and he said, I just thought that woman is really interesting. When I'm doing the right project, I would love to work with her. Wow. That was what he said he thought to himself in 19. It had to have been 89, no later than 90. Because I was already like left and going to Ireland and taking a year off and so it would have been that, and then he calls me for the outside tour. Why he would have thought that was the right time, I have no idea. But it, it not only was the right time; it, I managed to work there until until 2013, or whatever. Wow. Until the next day, I stayed. I remained the bass player. How, how amazing! How did?
3: David in, in the flesh compared to the, the image that you must have had of him in your head beforehand?
4: Um, that's an interesting question. Well, much more, um, I guess a lot of people might say this about, well, maybe I don't know what they say about other artists, to be honest, in that way. In, much more normal. You know, I imagine it'd be a bit more freaky, but also I think I feel like I got him at a particular age where he wasn't going to be like a total freak. <laughs> like you would imagine, you know, like, like you imagine he was when he's the thin white Duke and Ziggy, you know, with all the skinny and the pale face and the hair and the you know, lipstick or whatever. You don't, I knew he wasn't going to be like that every day. Whereas I have to say I wouldn't know that about Prince. I don't I never worked for Prince, but I would imagine he might look like he looks every day. I don't know, you know? But David was like just a normal guy, really. He was a normal British guy, attractive man. But especially when I first started working with him, he was um he had a lot of energy. He always did have energy. He didn't didn't wane till the very it didn't wane ever. But he was more he was, um I I think I marveled at his um uh, maybe not his physical energy. I'm speaking of, but he, I marvel at his his ability to, to be just thinking of new ideas. Like every like all the time, he was on his his whole brain was on autopilot all the time, just with all these great ideas. He, everything he saw, he saw it. he saw a million possibilities in it. You could see it in his eyes. You know, he would look at one thing, and you'd know that five thousand things that flashed through his mind what he could do with that thing you know and then he turned his head over that way and he, you could just see it he had this un- uncanny that was something that was uh, amazing about him in the flesh that I couldn't have know, you couldn't know from watching on a maybe a little bit but you know seeing him on a chat show or something or on stage
3: I was lucky enough to speak to uh, to one of his producers, Ken Scott, who'd worked with him on, on Ziggy Stardust and Aladdin Sane, and mm. he mentioned how Bowie was just so incredibly gifted at putting groups together and getting this sort of creative That's alchemy it. where he could choose just the right people.
4: Mm-hmm. That's it. That was his greatest gift. Yeah. And it's an under it like, people don't even realize how important that gift is. That is his greatest gift. That's what makes it even more amazing to be chosen as one of the colors on his palette. Mm. You know, it's like, because it's, he is, he knows exactly how to put the right mixture together. And that has been his gift from day one. Because it's not, if you, you know, he's not, he's the most amazing front man in the world. But he's not, um. You know, it's not like he's a musical virtuoso or you know, he's an incredible songwriter. That's that's without question. Um, but it's like as a as a sort of instrumentalist or whatever, that's you know, his for me it's his it's the voice, which you can't, you know, deny. He's to me he's one of the greatest singers I've ever heard. Um, right up there with like Sinatra or somebody, but an incredible singer. Uh but um you know, he put together the right things around him to always elevate his idea of what he wanted to put on fire for himself, and that is really difficult. Uh, people, you can't imagine how difficult that that can be. Um, you know, for a lot of artists. And you've you've toured
3: with, with Lenny Kravitz, and, and I know he was very particular about your bass sound, saying, okay, I want a vintage P bass to give it that, that funk mm-hmm. attitude. Was David that specific about what he wanted musically, or did he, he leave, did he leave you to it to do what you do best?
4: Not at all. Never even mentioned. He never, ever said a single word in, I don't know, 15 years or whatever, how many years, about what instrument I was playing or not playing. Never. Not once <laughs> didn't That's care. So cool. That's so <laughs> as long cool. as you as long as you as long as you played what he wanted, to, he, as long as he was enjoying singing, and it wasn't even like he was listening, you know, unlike Lenny would be, or some other artists. Not just Lenny would be listening to what you're playing, like what everybody's playing. They go, oh no, no, that that drum beat is not right. Well, you don't play that little bit too hard, or or can you, um, you know, can you not do a fill there, or can you do a fill there, or you know, like the, like some people are listening to all of those elements, you know, all the guitars, you know, too strummy. You should do it more with a pick. So he, he would come in and listen and sing, and if he didn't feel good, like you could tell if you were doing a, as an ensemble if you were doing the right thing, because you would see him smiling and enjoying <laughs> himself singing. And if he, and if he wasn't enjoying, smiling and enjoying himself singing, you knew you, you weren't quite doing the right thing, and he wouldn't tell you what the right thing was, you would just find it. But after a while... You know exactly what he's going to enjoy. you just learn, you learn it, and you, because you know what you enjoy like you 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 discover like he chooses all these different people, and amongst each other, you discover the beauty that you you discover, your own beauty that you make with these people as a band, not just with him singing, but just what what you do musically. so you're learning that as well, like you're learning. How to fit into this configuration that he's made, and and then when you start seeing how beautiful it is, or what blossoms, and you don't even and again you don't know why. Even I've never played with Earl Stick or I might have never played with Stirling, or I never you know heard of you know so and so. But I I walk in and I'm and I'm like wow, this sounds incredible. How is that possible? <laughs> and easily too, not so difficultly. Like everybody seems to know. And what it is, is that everybody's just doing what they do. Yeah. So then it goes back to his choice. Like no one's trying to do anything except do the best thing they can do because they're in David Bowie's freaking band. <laughs> so you're doing whatever you can do. You're doing at the height of your, like you are like what, on hyperdrive to do the best you can do at what you do because you don't, he's not telling you what he wants. Do you know what I'm saying? He's not telling you, he's telling you what song to play. And he might say, I don't want to do it like we used to do it. I don't want to do it like the record, like maybe change the beat or something. And he, and he will let you figure out what you might, how you might interpret it, especially on the first tour when he wasn't doing the hits. He wanted to do things that were... And if he did the hits, like Man Who Sold the World, he wanted to do a drum and bass version. Well, you better figure it out. Was that <laughs> and intimidating? He, and he won't, you know... Um, not, not all the time, sometimes in the beginning. Yeah. In the beginning, I was terrified. In the beginning I was terrified, but then I I learned to trust that he trusted me. He believed in me more than I believed in myself. I don't know how other, uh, the other musicians felt, but I, I know that he did. And he really pushed me sometimes. And, and then he, then I surprised myself. I will be forever indebted to him for that. I, I am so grateful to him for that. This is the greatest thing, the greatest gift you could give to another musician or an artist. You know, he always said, you know, like you've seen it in the interviews maybe, like stay out of your, when you're out of your comfort zone, you're in the right spot. <laughs> moment, the moment you're comfortable, you're, you know, you might as well not even be bothering. And, and he was the living proof of that. He always stretched himself, like each time it was some new, like he was going out on a limb. And he loved it. He loved the ride. It was like a roller coaster for him. He was laughing all the way. <laughs> <laughs> people might have been like, people might have been criticizing or whatever. He didn't give a shit. He was having a, he wanted to enjoy what he was doing and he, and he made sure that happened. And then, and he brought that joy to all of us. And I'm, I'm it was an incredible job. It was an incredible um, experience in my life. Priceless. I mean,
3: for me, the best example of of getting out of, of your comfort zone, personally, I love your version of Under Pressure, especially the the one at, oh, at Glastonbury. You. It's in, in 2000. Oh, thank you. Can you tell me how that came together? Because I know Queen were, you mentioned Heartbeat and your second favorite band. Mm-hmm. Queen were your number mm-hmm. one or are your number one, right? That's
4: right. Still are, yep. Oh man, that was that was freaky. I mean, I I just that I never even imagined because I just thought we would never do that song when I got you know it never occurred to me when I got the job with Bowie that we would even ever do that song because I thought well we never do under pressure because Freddie Mercury's dead and he would, he doesn't sing with other people you know who's going to do that song with him in the show because we didn't ever, we didn't have singers like that you know in the show. And then, sure enough, like, kind of in the early weeks, we, I was still on the Nine Inch Nails tour, I remember that, because we started doing it way back early, in the early days, 96. Um, I remember him coming into my dressing room, um, I think it was before a show would have been. And he came in, and he had a, a cassette tape of um, the version he did with Andy Lennox at Freddie's Memorial concert at Wembley Stadium. And which was stunning. I have a photograph of that on my wall in my little bedroom studio. I just love that. It was such a special moment. And I love Annie Lennox, too. Um, and I didn't know him yet then. He gave me, he said to me, do you ask me if, if I remembered that time? And I said, of course I do. And he said, well, I was thinking about doing that song in the show, like, you know, like I did it was Annie. And I said, well, who, who's gonna who's gonna play? So he was like, would you think about singing it? And I said, well, yeah, my goodness. But I said, who's gonna play the bass? Because I didn't. I thought we'd do it like Andy Lennox as well, and and you know, I would actually perform it with him, you know, in his arms or whatever. However they did it, or I would be performing it and somebody else would be playing the bass. And he said, no, you're gonna play the bass. <laughs> I said, I'm singing at the same time. Like, you know, and then he looked at me and he just put a very cheeky look and he just went, I'll give you two weeks. And he put <laughs> the cassette, he put the cassette down and he walked out of the room. <laughs> <laughs> no
3: pressure, no pressure. <laughs> oh, man. Talk
4: about under pressure. right. Yeah, right? <laughs> so, I, so I just drilled it for two weeks until I figured it out. But see, that's a perfect example. That was the biggest and most important example. It was like the earliest exam I passed <laughs> it was like exam number one if you get through this one you know you're good for a good 10 years <laughs> <laughs> so I was like oh my god I got the hardest SAT on the first round you oh know, whatever. so I, I so he gave me that job and I went to my hotel room every day and I put it on, in my cassette player or whatever I had and I studied it and put a metronome down and I did it slow and I did it fast. And so, so I figured it out. And he asked me one day, you think you're ready to try it and sound check? And I was like, yep, let's go. <laughs> let's do it. Let's try it. You know, I, I can't, I can't put it off any longer. <laughs> and the rest is history. It's changed my life doing that. So, and then the, the association with Freddie, because I used to ask him, I know they were friends and I used to ask him to please tell me stories about Freddie. The only one he would tell me was that he was like he was very fun. He was like, he said you would have loved him. And he said you he said you every time you turn up at his house he would always open the door and he'd be in full drag and he'd have opera blaring out by really, all around. <laughs> 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 and, I, and it's funny when he said that when I saw the film I was like oh it's just just like David said. <laughs> <laughs> He said, you turn up and say hi, you know, to hang out with Freddie. He opens the front door and he's just like a woman and the the opera is so loud it takes your head off. (laughs) (laughs)
3: That's everything I ever wanted him to be. I'm I'm so glad that that is true.
4: (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, um... So I was, and I told him how much I love Freddie. So he was like, Freddie would be really proud. When he told me Freddie, I mean, everybody tells me Freddie would be proud. And really that is the only thing I, that was the most important thing I wanted to do. I obviously didn't want to like suck in front of David, but I did not want to let Freddie's legacy down because that was the good, he really was the greatest performer I've ever seen in my life to this day. That The whole band in their original form in the late 70s, early 80s, I've never seen anything like it out of four human beings ever. That music drives me mad. It's so incredible. And the power and the force that came from those four guys was just unimaginable.
0: Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury
3: What were sessions like for, for the next day? Because I know not only were they top secret, but you were in the midst of dates with, I think, Lenny Kravitz and Olivia Newton-John. What was that experience I
4: like? I was. Yeah, I was busy. Well, it was hard. Um, initially, you know, I was I just went in to do the, the early tracks, the bass tracks. Um, yes, it was a secret. Um, he caught, again, there was a long period of time after the reality tour, of course, where he had his health issues. And he just went home to be, be home and, and get healthy and be with his family. I know he was really missing, his daughter was really little then. He was missing her, I, I could tell. Because it was all, you know, just Skyping every day or whatever. It's not the same, as yeah, we know. Yeah, yes, yes. <laughs> uh, so, so, as we've come to know. And he, he um, so, I you know, I kept in touch with him a little bit regularly by email. Just, you know, he asked, asked if I'd seen a movie. I, know, I remember we we emailed when um, Alexander McQueen uh, left us and stuff like that. So cause he'd done all, a lot of our clothes in the nineties. Um, so he called me again out of the blue. I think it was like in 2009 or 10 because yeah, it was in 2010, 2010, maybe 2011 even. And I was really busy, um, but he was like, I'm going to do this album. You know, what are you up to? Like so, I thought, okay, he's been thinking of something. I didn't, know, I never knew he was going to come back. You know, I never know. I mean, I mean, I knew he'd do something, but I didn't know what, because I knew he couldn't stop that that automatic thing that was going. In. There's no way in the world that's going to stop. <laughs> <laughs> no way. Um, so he just asked me he told me what it just explained the project again because he's very good, like like he called me with with the first tour he explained what it was, who it was with, who was in the band, how it was going to you know he gave me the details, so he did the same with this it's going to be quiet, it's going to be like um secret if you don't think you can handle that, then let me know um he's he was looking for a place He's looking for the right studio because uh you know he didn't want to so he didn't want it to be leaked, no matter what, and his reasoning for that was because he was fed up with the internet, which we all are now, um, being being a, <laughs> being um, this place where you can't do anything in privacy anymore. In terms of, especially in terms of releasing music, because at that time there was even more pirating and stuff. Like there was, seemed to be, if I recall. A little bit more of like, think you know, somebody was doing a record and then suddenly it got out, and then once it's out, it's out. You can't re-release it and sell it because it's out and it spreads around like wildfire. You know, instantly it's just out, and and people were losing songs apparently. Um, like you know, people that worked in a studio, I guess, would get a you know a zip drive or whatever they get a file or a thumbnail or whatever, or whatever and they would leak it. You know, it could be a tape op, or, or I, don't, I don't use tape, but I don't know what you call them now. Um, you know, computer op, um, stealing, so you know who knows. But things would get out. So he said, I don't want people to to get this music until, like, like in the old days, you go and make a record. Nobody, you know, knows you in the studio really making a record unless you want to talk about it. And but most artists in the seventies and stuff didn't. They just do their album, and all of a sudden, there was like this brand new single by the Eagles, you know, in the South. You know, and you weren't w- wondering what the Eagles were doing, or with, you know what I mean? Yeah. So he wanted he wanted to recreate, he, want, he just didn't want any preconceived, especially because he had taken a long time, and he had been sick beforehand, and he wasn't going to talk about that. Like, he wasn't, he didn't come out of his, whatever, his, medical thing was and do a whole press thing and do a reality show or whatever. You know, he didn't do all that. He wasn't into all that. So he was into his privacy. And he wanted the record, the music to be received in that way. He didn't want people to, if they knew he was making a record, they would already start writing about it. Somebody would have an opinion about what kind of record it was. Someone would say what they think he should do. Someone would say what they think he shouldn't do. Someone would have a, you know, you know what I mean? Yeah. It's like And everybody would be talking about this record and waiting for this record. And then they'd be waiting for him to leak a little bit of the record. And then there'd be people at the studio. And then they would be asking people, are you on the record? And they'd probably be calling me. You know, it was all these things would have happened. And he was right. They wouldn't. And he didn't want it and that was the reason and he was adamant about it and he uh, and so he, if you weren't on board and I think we did have to sign something because if we if we leaked it out we were screwed oh I bet yeah it was big and I I appreciated it because I'm like him I like my privacy I'm having a really hard time in the world right now without it but because it's taking I feel like it's being taken away in every aspect of my life in so many ways so I get it. You know, it's difficult, and he craved that more than anything. He wanted to, he wanted to just be normal in that way, like have his own thing <clears throat> that wasn't a public thing at all times, like a lot of people enjoy. So um, that was how that started, and then I I complied. I said yes, I will be. I didn't tell any. You couldn't tell your mother, your partner, your lover, your whoever. Nobody, your dog, nobody <laughs> could know. And so I had one friend he knew, one friend. And I said, I'm going to ask you, can I tell one friend? And I probably, I know she's not going to say a darn word. And he knew her because he had invited her. She used to hang out with us in the early days. And that's my best friend, Sarah Lee, who's also a bass player with the B-52s and Gang of Four. She's on Love Shack and oh, wow. Indigo Girls, Galileo, all that. She lives up here. We've been friends for like 30, almost 40 years. So Sarah knew And he liked her. He loved when she came around. I think it's because she's a Brit. (laughs) He likes his Brit. (laughs) So they would get all British, you know, together. And he was very kind to her. So I said, you know, I'm going to need somebody to bring me down to the studio. And I don't want to use the car service. They can't know either. Like I used to use a car service. Nobody could know where I was going or what I was doing. So I made up a story that I was in the city for two weeks working with an artist that didn't exist. And nobody was, and I knew nobody was going to look him up because I said, it's just new, it's some new artist in Sweden. I don't know. (laughs) They got some money. You know, I made up, as I said, they have some money and, you know, they can put me up for two weeks and uh, I'm going down to the city and work on this record and I'll be back. Nobody blinked an eyelash. No one looked it up or cared, really. So it was perfect. I was holding my breath. (laughs) They don't ask me who it is. so. Sarah knew, and I said, Sarah, will you drive me down so I can take my basses and my amp pedals and all the things I needed for the work for the session? i had to take a few different basses because I never knew what was coming. I had no idea what I was going to play. So I had to take a fretless and a five-string and a four-string and, you know, flat-wounds and round-wounds, and I had, you know, six basses or whatever with me. Wow. And a bunch of pedals and, and everything. I knew they had amps there. So I went down, and she dropped me off, so she knew where I was. And she was cool and she picked me up when it was over. And um, that's it. And that's how, and, I, and every day he came in, he had charts. They had been working on stuff. So for me, I, I usually come in when things are pretty much together. I'm just going to add the bass part. This one, this time, there were some parts that were like Tony, because he was a bass player. Normally, he's the one playing on the records with somebody else um but tony had written out some things i don't read very well but i could once i learned what they were i could just play them i could kind of see what was happening on the page but it was only certain little fills that that made sense in the music i can't tell you what they are now i don't remember but otherwise i was was again up to interpretation he had a basic setup there was some chords he had a little piano and a little like a little setup at a piano where he was playing his demos for us so you could hear what he'd been doing at home and then we take it away and re rehash it and we re- and say, Well, how can we embellish it? I see where you're going. Okay, let's see let's see what we work out. It's like, like we normally would work with him. He'd bring in a really rough idea. But he knew what he wanted. He knew what he knew what we were gonna give him, I guess, you know. And we did. I we made him he was he was he had that that Happy look on his (laughs) face that you like to see when you look through the thing. You're like, thank God he's smiling. (laughs) (laughs) And he's dancing. Oh, he's dancing. Oh, he's off the sofa. Oh, my God, I really hit it. (laughs) (laughs) It's true. Those were definite moments. I remember him. I could see him in his bedroom slippers. He'd come in and he'd put on his little slippers and get normal, put his glasses on. Total normal person, just creating music, just working, loving it, enjoying it. Happy, smiling, joking drinking lots of coffee <laughs> <laughs> and used to be smoking. And I was right with him, but we quit right around the same time when his daughter was born. Oh. I've been smoke free ever since. Thank God. Oh. Um, but uh, so that was how that came about. And then I, I'm not on the whole album only because it, when I left, um, there were more songs to do, but I couldn't get back because I couldn't tell anybody where I was going and I was busy. Oh, yeah. And so he called Tony Levin. He called Tony Levin, which is fine. He's my neighbor and I love Tony. <laughs> he, was, he lived across the street from me until a couple of years ago. So um, that was great. and. He used to bring in the the, the ideas, like he had some sheet music that he had brought out, um, maybe with words. I can't remember what was on it because what happened was he'd come in with a little briefcase at the beginning of the day in his little apple cap, his little baseball cap or whatever. And he'd come in and he'd open up this little briefcase and he'd put the music on the stands where we were all stationed. We all had our little stations. And then and then at the end of the day he'd come and rip it off. But he'd do it really dramatically. It was funny. <laughs> he'd come in, he'd come around and he'd snaps the paper off and he'd put in his, you know, his, his little dossier, like, oh, you'll never get the you know <laughs> <laughs> it was funny. And that was the ritual. Every day he took everything home, everything, hard drives, everything at the end of the day. He was adamant that nobody was gonna screw him with this. And he and, he, and then it was done. And I heard nothing because I was like, I wondered if he would ever put it out. Wow. This was two years between when I did all that. Oh, I didn't know I was that like long. No. And I and I never mentioned it again. I never mentioned it to anybody in two years. And there's no way in the world I was like, it was a Swedish artist. I don't remember <laughs> his name. He didn't. He didn't do very well. Right, <laughs> <laughs> but I got paid. <laughs> <laughs> so. <laughs> And then all of a sudden, I can remember it like clockwork. I was—it's usually I was listening to WDST radio in Woodstock, and the clock radio goes off at nine or whatever time it was going off in the morning. I listened to Greg Patine, and the radio went off. And then I'm—you know—I lay there for a minute, and all of a sudden, I hear them say, "There's a new Bowie single has just come out, and we're, it's just come out this minute." And, and I was like, <gasps> You know, my heart stopped. I was like, oh, oh my, my God. <laughs> and it was Where Are We Now with Tony. Oh. And I was like, oh, because that was one song I didn't know because I didn't get to do that one. There were a few. But I, I played on a good amount of those songs. I can't remember now. And then it was, they did a deluxe version after the first original version. And then there was another batch of like three or four songs I was on that are on that, like um, the one with the UFO. I forget what it's called. Uh, and, and, the, and there's a, um, I can't remember the names now God, I gotta pull that record out yeah um, so that's, that's how that kind of came about and what happened with that from, for me anyway and I didn't know about Blackstar I had no idea he did it again and, and I had no idea I, knew, I had a little bit of an idea because somebody knew something that he was working on something and, and, and I think someone mentioned the word jazz or something and, and then I just thought well that makes sense because we used to talk about Stan Kenton and stuff. He used to love Stan Kenton. He, in fact, he introduced me to him. I hadn't really, didn't, I liked jazz, but I didn't know his music that much. So we listened to that Tropicana album and stuff and just really loved it. And I knew that he said, one day I want to do something like this. And when he says, one day I want to, it means it's going to fucking happen. <laughs> 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 unlike some people like myself so I'm trying to learn how that magic works I'm trying to you know make it I'm like one day I'm gonna hey is anybody listening anyway so he he says one day I'm gonna make a jazz record I really wanna do that you know and, and a long time ago we talked about Mingus is one of he's like Ooh, my favorite yeah. bass player of all time and and that's that's his favorite jazz artist. we discovered that so we would just Mingus out sometimes and have like Mingus days I used to go and visit him sometimes and listen to records. He had a little space where he had vinyl and stuff. was great. And um, so he made Black Star, which involved Donnie McCaslin and a a more jazzier thing that made sense. It's kind of like Stan Kenton, but everything he did, he always put the Bowie spin on it from Earthling to, you know, to the black star, like if he's doing jazz or if he's doing funk or like Let's Dance or whatever, it's, it's still got a thing from him that, that's what makes it. I don't know. And that's undescribable to me as well. You know, well, how, how does he take these genres that he loves and twist them just ever so slightly that it, it becomes him? And you're not thinking, oh, it's just it's, it's someone making a jazz record. You know, it's different. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's some some artists try like you know I'm try I'm trying to bridge that myself with some new work that I'm trying to work on. You know I'm you know trying to pull together. It's like I want to do something from a particular genre, but I don't want it to be retro. It's not like I'm making a record of that genre. I'm making a record of now because now is now. But there's a huge influence of something from that energy I want to incorporate with my own energy, and how that meshes together is. Is, a, is sometimes a mystery. Sometimes it just falls together and other times. But for him, I feel like it was something that was just, it always worked. He knew just how to turn that, turn that tap, you know? How to, how to, just what mixtures of, you know, to put in the bowl and stir it up and it was always the perfect mixture. You know, it always tastes perfect. <laughs> <laughs> it would ta- and it tastes like him, you know, it was Bowie. It was Bowie's pancake mix. Nobody <laughs> else's, you know. <laughs> <sighs> so, yeah. Uh, so I was very surprised when he passed away. It was awful. It was awful. That was an awful year. I thought that yeah, this year's last year was pretty awful, but that was awful too. Twenty sixteen was a bad omen of something I felt in some ways.
3: No, not 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 one for the books. No, I.
4: Mm-mm, I'm not sorry. at all. We lost so many incredible people, and him especially was such a surprise. Yeah, I hadn't seen him that that year. And I had an email from him that was kind of strange, uh, close to the time that he passed away. Now it makes sense, but it didn't... Not that it didn't make sense, but I was like, oh, that's a nice email like, out of nowhere. I appreciate that. You know, it was kind of like, a, just a hello, I love you kind of email. Like, and I just thought, like, hmm. It's not a usual thing. He's not a sentimental kind of guy in that way. That I think of. I don't. Remember. He, in, he's a sweet man and very kind and one of the most respectful people I've ever met. Like especially someone in his position that could, that sometimes can or thinks they can afford to not be so respectful. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I should put it that way, you know. But he was just so kind and sweet. But he wasn't a, a mushy guy. You know, he didn't want you to get mushy. <laughs> he didn't, that was a British thing, I guess. You know, oh, come on, stiff up a bit, make a cup of tea. You know, it's like, I don't want to go there. Let's not get too sentimental about things. So I, I had a little bit of a sentimental email from him before he passed, which was interesting.
3: That must be really nice to have now, just as a mm. as a. Oh, yeah.
4: A goodbye. Mm. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely.
3: Gail, it, it has been such a tremendous honor speaking you. Thank you so much for taking the time. I, but before I let you go, I, mm-hmm. I, I'm dying to see you play live, but we're, we're, we're speaking in, in, in late winter 2021 when the live music industry is obviously mm-hmm. shut down. Uh, how can yeah. people see the work that you're doing at the moment when they can't see you on the stage?
4: I would love people to check out my patreon page if possible it's it's brand new now pretty much. i've just gone through our first month in february and i'm just gearing up for the second month so i'm still finding my footing it's an a, obviously this is such a new adjustment for for everybody in the world <clears throat> trying to um remain creative in the digital world and the virtual world or I'm not sure what it's really called at this point. <laughs> um, yeah. but I'm I'm doing some you, you know really I don't I'm not quite sure what what I'm, how to describe it but but we all know what I'm talking about I think. And and I'm so I'm doing this Patreon thing which is a subscriber service and Right now, I'm not doing my own music on it, but I will be eventually. I'm I'm just trying to set up a system to give some people some um, nice stories, some exclusives, some photographs. Share some of my photographs and videos that I've made that you won't see anywhere else other than Patreon if you subscribe. Um, um, I'm also offering. I'm giving myself a challenge, which is part of my regimen of rebuilding myself as a solo artist. Is that once a month on Patreon, I'm giving Um, A a cover tune I'm announcing an artist at the end of the month and then for the following month I'm going to record a song by that artist so you get to vote on which song you like to hear me cover and I'm doing I'm just sort of doing it all on my own at my home studio so it's not like a professional recording maybe it might be one day Um, but I've just delivered the first song which was Paul Williams was the first artist one of my favorite songwriters and I did I Won't Last a Day Without You so um, that's where you can find me and also on Instagram, Gail Ann Dorsey Music, and on Facebook, which I also have a music fan page under Gail Ann Dorsey Music. And I think Twitter as well. I don't use Twitter so much. I don't quite understand it. I'm going to be honest. I'm going to sound like an old fogey here, but Twitter I don't get. <laughs> but, but I'm good with Instagram and Facebook kind of. But Instagram, I enjoy, and I'm there occasionally. I'm I'm trying to be there a little more, but now most of my attention is Patreon. So I, w- I would hope people would check it out if they're interested in seeing what I'm doing in the future because I am working on some new music for a for solo venture. Patreon.com.
3: And we will check it out there, and we hopefully very, very soon, we will see you on the stage, in front of us, no yes. screens.
4: Yes, yes, Absolutely.
3: Off the Record is a production of iHeartRadio. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a review. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.
0: Infinity Presents, a new chapter in luxury. Taxes and fees not included. Offer valid through 4 24 while supplies last. Online only. Must purchase a straight-talk extended Silver Unlimited plan to qualify. Limit of five phones per customer. Family plan discount with four lines all on the Silver Unlimited plan. Not combinable with auto pay discount. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus,